Today, I am joined by Robin Hansen. Uh, Robin is an economist, uh, an associate professor of economics at George Mason University, and a research associate at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. Um, he is also the author of many fine books, including The Age of M and The Elephant in the Brain. And you can also find his most recent work uh, at grabbyaliens.com. Welcome, Robin. Great to be here. Uh, I'm glad to, to have you on. I've uh, followed your work for um, quite a long time. And um, I think maybe we could uh, we could start from... Um, your greatest hits, one of your greatest hits, and one that kind of hooked me into the into the the Robin Hanson universe was reading uh, the Elephant in the Brain, which is about signaling theory, and it's quite a, um, a startling hypothesis, and one that while you make your way through the book, you know, see, starts a little bit implausible. Um, you know, you make some some bold claims, but then by the end of the book, it you know, it just becomes another lens and it's very uh, disorienting. I remember just for about three weeks, just completely having the signaling theory lens on and just, you know, analyzing any sort of interaction I had with uh, the outside world and other people with me. And I didn't really know what to make of it, but it's it's quite a, um, I don't know, like I said, it's, it's a very interesting lens to take on. Um, and though I think probably, you know, a section of my audience has read the book and, and knows about signaling theory. I think maybe it'd be good to, um, if you can just give it an overview, what about it is so, um, which, which blind spot are you unveiling there that is so um, shocking? Well, we all go through the world telling ourselves stories and other people's stories about what we're doing and why. And the why is pretty essential. So we present ourselves with the reasons we have for our actions. And the claim of our book, The Elephant in the Brain, is that we're just wrong about our motives a lot of the time, oblivious to the fact that we're wrong. And the key idea is your mind is the press secretary of your mind. That is the conscious voice that you might speak to me with. That part of your head that you're very aware of isn't actually in charge. Its job isn't to make the decisions. Its job is to justify them, uh, to come up with excuses, to explain them to other people, to protect you against accusations that you are violating norms and rules. So uh, the reasons you come up with are, there are reasons that do contribute to behavior. Any area of your life has many motives that contribute to it, but the strongest, biggest motive that you have is one that you tend to neglect and downplay because you fear it makes you more vulnerable to accusations. So for example, why do you go to school? Well, you might say, I go to school to learn the material so that I'll be a more useful employee and citizen in the future. And of course, some elements of school are organized around that story. You, you have a syllabus and you have readings and tests. Uh, and of course, people then hire you afterwards because you have a degree, all of which on the surface seems to fit the story that you went to school to learn useful material. And now that you have know it, you are a more valuable employee. But our claim is that's just wrong. Uh, if we look at the larger social forces that structure school and put you in school, we say more what's going on is that you are trying to show off how smart and conscientious and conformist you are and then employees like those features, and your successfully navigating school assures them that you have those features, uh, but you don't admit that. You instead say you're there to learn the material. And then 
the way I show this to you in the book and my, my co-author is that we show you a bunch of facts about school that don't fit very well with the story that you're there to learn the material. For example, you don't actually learn very much. You don't remember very much of what you learn and what you actually do remember isn't very useful. And we have a lot of other particular details that we go through uh, in the book. And that's the format we're going to use for all the other chapters in our book is to say, you're telling yourself the story about what you're doing and why, and you're quite often wrong about that why, because the story you present sounds better and makes you look better. Yeah, so this is pretty much all kind of downstream from from status seeking, from from trying to be someone in a certain hierarchy that we, we're trying to position ourselves in. So often the typical, the, the main common element is that the motive you actually have makes you more vulnerable to people accusing you of breaking rules. Mm -hmm. So sometimes that's because you're selfish. Sometimes it's because you're making alliances you're not supposed to. Uh, there can be a variety of reasons. Um, sometimes it's because you're showing off and you're not supposed to. And so that's so common that you, you have the perception that our book is mainly about signaling, which is about showing off. But showing off isn't the only explanation we use for hidden behavior, hidden motives, but it's pretty common, yes. So we humans have long had a norm against showing off, against bragging. And much of what we're doing is bragging. It is showing off. And in order to hide that, we tell ourselves we're doing things for other reasons. Even when the showing off is very kind. So for example, we say, you think of medicine as mainly to get healthy, but we think medicine is better explained by showing off. But you're showing off how much you care about others and letting them show how much they care about you. You might think that was pretty heartwarming sort of motive. Even so, it's showing off. And that makes you vulnerable to accusations. And it's maybe creating subgroup alliances that are also taboo and you're safer to just say what you're doing is just helping them to get well. Yeah, I think one of the the interesting implications here, probably the, one of the most shocking chapters is this one about medicine, but the idea that um, how little people are actually concerned with um, effectiveness, with, you know, actually positive result from taking a certain action or um, the, the, the overwhelming pressure that, we have to either align, you know, either the, the, the hidden motives are extremely powerful compared to uh, to what you show is, you know, the actual outcome of many of these. And, and the fact that people are very disinterested in the outcome is also interesting. It, it doesn't occur to you just by, by moving through the world that, um, you know, there, there really is no way to measure um, medical outcomes. And there, there, there are ways to measure medical, but just there's no one interested in that. And the fact that no one really is interested, and even I found myself, I mean, my eyes glazed over at the, the idea that I would be checking effectiveness of a lot of these things. And that, you know, maybe betrays the fact that I'm, I'm very much, you know, a part of the, the you know, signaling uh, cabal, but um, it's, it, it is a, a very strange thing and very counterintuitive once you, uh, once you kind of make your peace with it. I mean, if you, many other things you buy, you do make sure to see that you get what you order. If you order, you know, fish at dinner, you look down at the plate and see if it's fish. Broccoli was on the menu. You check that it's broccoli. You uh, have somebody repaint your kitchen. You Come in and see if it's repainted. 
there are many ways in our lives that we're willing to be, you know, careful and look at um, if we are getting what we paid for. But when it comes to medicine, we turn all that off. What What is the, the difference that you found between the areas that we are attentive in and the areas where we really don't care? Well, uh, as you said, a lot is about what what we're trying to show off to who. So um, once we have the story that we're supposed to be following, then we're satisfied with that. And some of those stories just don't have us paying much attention to the detail. Um, now, we have our chapter on religion, say, it says that uh, religion, you know, people tend to think religion is about the religious beliefs and what actions will be, you know, appropriate according to those beliefs, but we say religion is more about bonding together. Uh, and recently I've put a lot of effort into understanding the sacred. This is after our book, The Elephant in the Brain, and my understanding now of how the sacred works, you know, says in particular that we don't like to look at the details of sacred things. And uh, we have a particular theory to help us understand that. That's that would be my most refined answer to when don't we want to look at the details? It's when mm. it's sacred. So, and we consider me medicine as a kind of relatively a sacred. sacred yes, yeah. but school also to some degree. Yeah, that is that is true. Um, especially because um, I mean, the, the the institutions of higher learning kind of bestow a certain um, I don't know status on on people, even kind of right. what. So we often are eager to associate with prestigious people in an area. And we often feel that paying attention to the details would be disrespectful to their prestige. Uh, we're there to trust the doctor, you see, and, and looking critically at whether the doctor is actually giving us what he promised seems disrespectful to the prestige of the doctor. And that would make us have less of a close affiliation with this prestigious doctor. Mm, okay. uh, we not only want to be affiliated with prestigious, but we want to think it's a friendly, trusting relationship where that would add to our prestige if they trust us, you see. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think it's, uh, it's a good uh, place to, to kind of move into, into discussion of the sacred because you mentioned that this is something you've, uh, you've been thinking about. Um, I remember reading and there's, so there are many factors that go into what you've discovered about the sacred. Uh, one thing that's interesting to me and kind of what I've noticed, um, you know, living in the present and uh, seeing um, kind of what the internet has done to the sacred and the categories that are sacred to us. And the fact that you could have, you know, four people living together in the same household, each with their own little um, satchel of, of sacred things that could be completely different. I think it's a, it's a very interesting time in history where this can happen. Obviously, you know, hundreds of years ago, People were following the same religion. They're very much aligned on what they thought was sacred. Um, if they wanted to um, leave the religion, it was a, a big problem. But nowadays, because we're all plugged into some meaning-making uh, machineries of our own choice, or you know, whatever whatever tickles our fancy, um, people living together can can conflict very strongly on on what they find, uh, what they think is sacred. I mean, the the idea of multiple sacrednesses, sacralities, um, and and directions that people take. Um, do you think that is is a problem? Is is it something that you've been uh, you 
that factors into your analysis? So there's two things we could discuss here. One is variation across people who interact in what they consider sacred. And another is how the sacred has fragmented from a religious sacred, which had a very integrated point of view about it, to the sacred sort of spreading out across many topics without a religious center that coordinates that. Um, so uh, on, the fra- on, the, on the variation of the sacred, um, Emile Durkheim uh, is somebody whose accounts of religion and the sacred I'm, I build on. And his book on religion in published in 1912, he focused actually on Aborigines who had a totem religion where basically some people would be of the, say, you know, dog totem or something. And then they would come together and do their dog things, but they would live among people who had other totems, the snake totem, say, or the sky totem. And apparently this was, you know, comforting and, and, you know, um, worked out for people to have this world where they lived among people who had basically a different religion. (laughs) And we think of that as a conflict, but actually most ancient societies, you know, had a lot of different gods and uh, sacred things all mixed up together, and it wasn't so much of a conflict. And then sort of the major world religions that came and replaced that, they were the ones who more insisted that they be the only religion. And Christianity came and said, no, there's only one God, and it's our God. And they wouldn't make peace with the other religions you see. And, and Whereas, you know, in Rome, lots of different gods and, and lots of different powers, and that was okay. <laughs> um, so, uh, we have an ancient heritage for the ability to, for people who live among each other to have different things they consider sacred. And that doesn't have to go badly. Uh, but then we have this more recent era when there was this strong idea that no, everybody needed to agree on religion and that we were going to fight it out in order to see which was the one religion we would all have. But now we're returning to more diversity. We're going back to a world where we live among people who vary substantially in what they can treat as how sacred. And the question is, which of those things it's okay to vary and which not? So like, for example, in our world, politics seems to be now becoming the sort of thing where people are not going to be very willing to live among people who have a different politics but they might be willing to live among people who have a f- different favorite TV show or a different hobby. Um, so I don't know, you know, where that's going to go. Uh, but we just have these different heritages that show that both have been possible in the past. But the fragmentation, at least, I think, is something that I can say more about. That is, you know, centuries ago, around here, Christianity had this unified lock on the sacred. Uh, There was the most sacred thing or God, and then other things that were sacred because God said so. And then God could tell us which things were how sacred and which things that we should let alone and not mess with. Um, And and which things were okay to mess with. Um, And so uh, I think, you know, our society from centuries ago 
religion was very sacred and maybe marriage was sacred and death was sacred. But then religion told us that business competition and inequality and taking over nature, those were all declared okay by God. So even though we have some innate tendency to treat those things as sacred too, religion told us to let it be, that we should just let those things go wild, basically. And we did. And now that we're losing religion as the central coordination point and authority about the sacred, our sacred energies are spreading out across nature and inequality and the arts and lots of different areas. And now we're no longer accepting that, say, the Christian God told us it was okay to so to conquer nature or to be unequal. And therefore, we're more applying our sacred rules to lots of other areas of life. And I think that's contributing, say, to high degrees of regulation and conflict in a lot of other areas of life because um, ordinary sort of business competition and change and innovation typically threatens to violate various senses of the sacred of many things. Mm. And therefore, um, we're tempted to to get in those to, to stop those things to to limit those things because they're sacred. So, yeah, if, if I get this correctly, is that in the past there were there were clear guidelines imposed mostly by religion of what is sacred, what is not. Um, it was kind of a coordination mechanism for pretty much everyone in the in the society. And now we have a point where the sacred has not disappeared, but kind of left to to reign freely uh, under the surface without being acknowledged as such. And then these kind of in, instinctual, uh, almost animistic uh, instincts that we have, uh, they dictate things that, you know, require a sort of regulation. And then essentially the state has to step in and slap actual regulation right. on top of these to, to provide the, the right. guardrails that people are missing. So, so we're more like if nature is sacred, then if other people are out there messing with nature and that offends us, we're more entitled, we're more tempted to push the government and say, hey, make them stop. Uh, we all need to approve anything that messes with nature because it's sacred. Or even with medicine, like somebody's trying to introduce some new medical treatment. Um, those people want to take it, their doctors want to give it to them, but I go, hey, you're messing with nature, you're messing with what I think is the, is how humans should be or the risk they should be allowed to take. And so we push for more regulation and um, say with nuclear power or other sorts of behavior, we're basically, we are a much more regulated society now that we're a less religious society. And I think that's related. I think um, we just take sort of a raw sacred sense about something and we all see that we kind of share that. And then we go, these people are messing with that. They're changing with that. We go, no. That, that needs to stop. Um, and previously we'd have been limited there because we'd have said, hey, they're messing with nature. And the priest would say, God said, it's okay to mess with nature. God told us to go mess with nature and go, oh, oh, okay. Or we'd say, hey, this business person put that other business person out of business. And we'd say, hey, God said, that's okay. <laughs> uh, you know, the sacred is over here. If you want to do sacred stuff here, come to church. Uh, we'll show you more sacred stuff, but stop looking at this other stuff as sacred. <laughs> Basically the church protected other areas of life from our, you know, putting molasses into the works on the name of the sacred. 
Yes. I think it's uh it's a it's a strange time to be in <laughs> at the moment just because um I don't feel like there are many coordination mechanisms left in society and people are really scrambling to invent some and I feel like they're the ones that we've we're inventing now in the short term seem like they're not very very well fit for purpose um and I think there's also 